Welcome to The Screwball Story, a podcast that explores movies from one of classical Hollywood's most beloved genres, screwball comedy. I'm your host, Olympia Kiriakou, and each week I'll be taking you on a deep dive into one screwball classic. If you've listened to season one of The Screwball Story, you'll recognize my next guest. Kate Liberati is a healthcare worker, theater actor, and film lover from upstate New York. I recently sat down with Kate to discuss The Mad Miss Manton, starring Barbara Stanwyck and Henry Fonda. Here's our conversation. Welcome, Kate. Thank you for having me again. I'm so excited. I'm so excited, too. So, listeners of the pod may remember you from our episode last season on Barbara Stanwyck, where we talked about the Lady Eve and Ball of Fire. Um, But for those listeners that are new, can you reintroduce yourself? When did you first discover classical Hollywood? And what made you fall in love with Barbara Stanwyck in the first place? Yeah, so hi, everybody who's listening. Um, My name is Kate, and I can really credit my grandparents with my love for classic Hollywood, as I'm sure a lot of us can relate. Um, I spent a lot of time with them growing up, and TCM was always on their TV. So I grew up watching a lot of older films, and I fell in love first with, you know, Betty Davis, Judy Garland, The classics of the classics. Like the gateways, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So as I got older, I started discovering more and more performers that I enjoyed. And I think it was during COVID that I really fell into Barbara Stanwyck's filmography. And I was absolutely captivated. And to this day, I still love discovering bits and pieces about her new films that I haven't been able to find suddenly appear somewhere. And, you know, it's something about her just captured my attention and has not gone away. So I'm excited to talk about her again. So just to give listeners a little background on the film. So it was based on a story by the playwright Wilson Collison. And if you recognize that name, two of my favorite things that he's written were the original screenplay of Red Dust. um, And he also wrote the novel Dark Dame, which was later adapted into the Maisie series, which with my girl, um, Anne Southern. And originally, Melsa, I believe, was offered to both Irene Dunn and Catherine Hepburn before yeah. it went to Stanwyck. Kate, can you talk a little bit about like how Stanwyck came to this role and, you know, what she what she brings to to Melsa? Yeah. So as you said, it was originally offered to Irene Dunn, who was going to star with Herbert Marshall. And then Catherine Hepburn was offered the role with Douglas Fairbanks in Henry Fonda's part. And I think it was something where they were both attached to other projects ultimately at the time because they were both under, Irene and Catherine were both under studio specific projects. And Barbara Stanwyck at the time was not attached to a specific studio. So she kind of had a little more, I guess, wiggle room to do different projects because she wasn't under a certain studio. And there's such a kind of a long story because this whole thing kind of starts with Dark Victory. You know, Dark Victory, we all know Betty Davis. Barbara wanted that part because she was doing the radio play. Mm. And the day after she 
did the radio play, they announced, Warner announced that Betty Davis was going to be in the film. And she was pissed. (laughs) (laughs) Understandable. (laughs) For lack of a better word, she was furious. And if you've read Victoria Wilson's book on Barbara, Steel True, she talks a little bit more in a little bit more detail about all of that. But ultimately, Barbara wanted Dark Victory. She didn't get Dark Victory. And she ended up filming a couple of different things in between before she got to the Madness Mountain. I can't picture anybody else playing Melsa after seeing her do it. Neither can I. And that's what I was going to ask you. What do you think she brings to the role that, say, like an Irene Dunn or Katherine Hepburn really couldn't give it? Ultimately, I think it goes back to her persona off camera. Mm -hmm. And I really think she just brings her own personality to it. Because Melsa is considered a stereotypical high society debutante type, but she's really not. Mm -hmm. Um, She has kind of a fun-loving side, but she knows how to be serious and go after what she wants. And she spends pretty much the entire movie trying to prove that she's not lying about the murder that took place. Yeah. And she is advocating so strongly for the fact that I'm not a liar. I'm going to clear my name. I'm going to sue the paper. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And that really just speaks to, I think, how strong Barbara's personality was in real life. Yeah. Melsa is one in a long line of these like madcap heiresses. And I think that filmmakers tended to maybe do that in the 1930s because it was an easy way to like interrogate class and you could do it in sort of like a comedic fashion. But the film pokes fun at Melsa, but also like she's she bucks that stereotype because she is so smart, as you said. She's not just this like dizzy character, like an, you know, an Irene and my man Godfrey. She's right. like always one step ahead of everybody. Right. And she's the clear leader of her gang of girlfriends, too. They all look to her for what they're going to do next and Mm -hmm. how they're going to proceed with solving the case. And she's the clearly, I don't want to say the moral compass, but that's the only term I'm thinking of right now. Yeah. Uh, So in a way, she is like the, I guess, the moral compass, like the, the strong, sturdy Yeah, she's like the glue that holds that group together. And she's like the most sensible and all of them have very unique personalities and they all do. (laughs) But like Melsa is the centerpiece of that little gang. Right. It's interesting to me that even though she's such a smart character, the men especially, they really like downplay her intelligence to the point like they almost like infantilize her. The lieutenant and Peter, they, they both mention about how like, you should get a spanking or like someday I'll beat the nasty out of you. And it's frustrating to see those like gender dynamics. From oh, a for sure. Perspective, and but. there's also the one scene where if anybody has not seen the film, I don't want to give too much away, but there's one scene where they're outside her apartment building and something major happens. And there's this whole thing with the guy that's like, I don't like society dames. Mm-hmm. And that's all that they think she is. Yeah. And so that kind of goes back to like the, infantilization and lack of understanding of her as a person. And I think that speaks to the film's broader politics. It's typical of Screwball in that a lot of these films don't necessarily respect institutions and specifically like the police. Uh, They're very critical of like social institutions. They're like in decay. And I mean, you get that 
broadly with this film, you're having like private citizen take like the law into her own hands, basically. Like she's doing what the police can't really do. And right. there's like absurdity to that because you have these debutantes wearing like furs, you know, breaking into houses with like crowbars. Right. And they're all going around with their little flashlights looking for bloodstains and, you know, just tearing apart the bedroom. And if you watch that without any context, you'd be like, what are they doing? Like, what is going on? Exactly. How do you think the film like balances its politics with the comedy? I think it does it very well. There's a lot to be said about the class Mm -hmm. um, distinctions. Because if you take the character of Peter, who is just this newspaper reporter who ultimately, you know, falls in love with Melsa, who is this upper class woman. There's that class distinction between them where he's Mm -hmm. like, there are quite a few comments where he's like, oh, well, you've got money. Like, we'll be fine. And other stuff. And so it's kind of the reverse there because normally you would think like I feel like most movies place the man in the position of quote unquote power so to speak yeah Peter's not yeah even though he is responsible for the slandering her name I think it handles the class distinctions and the class conversations very well and it was interesting because this was 1938 which I think is also important to consider in terms of money and discussions of like you know wealth and stuff like that in the, mm-hmm. in the maybe it happened on night the really only good sort of parallel to this film because you know if i'm like let's say my man godfrey godfrey is still ultimately a member of the upper class whereas mm-hmm. so there's not really a true disparity between the the genders but peter's just like a, a working class every man mm-hmm. um and I think that definitely plays into his perception of who Melsa is. At first, he sort of writes her off. He thinks he, she's just this spoiled, exactly. you know. Yeah. yeah, like a stupid debutante, basically. And so it's interesting to see that dynamic at play. And I think this film, it's, it's very critical of the police as an institution. Like there's just an overall lack of like respect for the police right. and like the way they approach the murder. Right. Because when you think about it, like they, the, when she first calls about the murder, they do not take her seriously at all. Yeah. And the whole underlying theme throughout that is that whenever they do get the police involved, the police are either like angry or they're like, we don't, we don't trust you. Like, we don't know if you're telling the truth or not. And it is funny to me that this whole gang of rich women, like you said earlier, like in their furs and their fancy dresses and everything, they're the ones that are ultimately trying to solve this murder when it's the job of the police. Exactly. And, and I mean, the debutantes don't take the lieutenant seriously. Like, even something as simple as like their body language in the scene where they're in his office and he's interrogating them, like they're lying on chairs or couches mm-hmm. and they like, they totally don't care about any procedure. Right. And in that scene, Melsa even, she pretends to confess and then he calls her out and she's like, well, you told me to cooperate with you and totally disregarding any protocol. And she has like no respect for him because again, she's smarter than him. She could do this on her own. It's just... They're almost like getting in the way right. of what she could accomplish. Right. Because now she has it in her in her mind that I know there was a body there. I know what I saw. I'm going to find out what happened. Yeah. And she does. Screwball wouldn't really be what it what it is without the plethora of really wonderful character actors. And in this film, we have Hattie McDaniel, of course, who plays Hilda the maid. And then she- Sam 
I love her. Me too. And Sam Levine, who plays the lieutenant, and they're both, you know, these staples character actors with really extensive careers in show business. And I think for me, in different ways, both Tilda and the lieutenant, they almost, they're exasperated by Melsa in different ways, of course. And I think that definitely contributes to like the film's light, almost like absurd aura. How do you think those characters fit into the film world and what dynamics do the actors bring to their characters? Well, I think there is a really special relationship, especially between Melsa and Hilda. Mm -hmm. I feel like Hilda's exasperation with Melsa it just comes from a place of love I feel like because I feel like you don't see it in the film but if there's clearly a long history and yeah. like a connection between the two of them and I think that ultimately Hilda is just like you know she is who she is and I just got to deal with it but I mean Hilda is also she's her maid so she sees a lot mm-hmm. of other side of her as opposed to like the society facing yeah I can't remember how far into the movie it is but there's this specific scene where she says something about how they're all thinking about men and how men are a distraction then she's like well actually it's not bad thinking at all (laughs) and (laughs) I'm gonna think about them when I want (laughs) right yeah. yeah and I think that's just um she just gets these really little funny asides and it kind of offers her a chance to become her own character instead of just like a supporting. I feel like a lot of the character actors mm. in most films are just kind of they get like maybe one funny line and then you never see them. Yeah. Or they're just like in the background doing something and then you never see them. Yeah. Um, that's not the case with, you know, Hattie and Sam. And even if you just look at the gang of ladies that Melsa has around her they're all completely fleshed out individual characters with their own personalities instead of just being extras totally yeah they each have a distinct persona like one keeps talking about like communism another one loves to eat another Mm -hmm. one like is constantly worried about her boyfriend so yeah it's not just you know Peter and Melsa you have a fully fleshed out world with uh these wacky personalities yeah I mean, Hattie McDaniel, obviously, there's a lot to unpack in terms of like the racial politics of her character. Um, She is, for those of you listening or maybe unfamiliar with Hattie McDaniel, she is an African-American or was an African-American woman. And she, unfortunately, because of racism of the day and the protection code um, limiting the types of roles that um, non-white actors could play, she's, you know, stereotyped into domestic servant roles for the majority of her career um so obviously that is a factor in thinking about her character but I do love that she is unbridled in her sassiness she will say whatever she wants and she doesn't really have a filter she puts debutantes in their place my favorite moment is when all the debutantes are in Melsa's apartment and one keeps talking about oh I'm hungry I'm hungry and she's like no too bad kitchen's closed Right. And I love in that scene you just mentioned before all the debutantes get there. There's that whole thing where Melissa's like, oh, Hattie, you're fired. Pack your bags. Go on. Get out of here. And she's just like, yeah, yeah. like <laughs> Whatever. I've heard this before. She puts Melissa in her place. And I think in a way that nobody really else can in the story. Right. So, of course, we've talked about Barbara Stanwyck. We can't forget um, 
I was going to call him Peter Fonda, Henry, <laughs> Henry Fonda. <laughs> so RKO secured uh, Fonda via a Lono deal with Walter Wanger, who he was under contract with. He made two iconic screwball comedies. And yet I don't think he's discussed often as a sort of like typical screwball actor. And yet I think his star persona very much fits that prototype. He's very soft-spoken. He's calm. He's sort of demure. And I guess, how would you describe his comedy style? And what does he bring to the Peter role? I love him as Peter. I think he's just fantastic. Mm -hmm. And again, I can't picture anybody else playing him and so this was actually the first on-screen pairing between Barbara and Henry Mm -hmm. so people may be most familiar with the Lady Eve but this was the first time that they ever worked together so I think it's really interesting to see how there was already chemistry there from the start but I also think it's interesting to know that Henry hated the script oh did he he did he did So I remember reading that he did not like the script and he thought the part was one note. And Uh like you said, he is not a stereotypical screwball type of guy, but he considered himself like more of a deadpan comedian type. And he just didn't think that this was the right part for him. But I think it was the right part for him. I mean, maybe that's just me having seen the movie and being like oh like I can't picture anybody else except Henry Fonda playing it but he yeah. just brings such a a naive charm and like boyish like almost innocent quality to go against Stanwick yeah does not have any of that like naive nature about her like she yeah. is almost otherworldly compared yeah. to him and the two of them together I think is just I think it's perfect And I think Henry is just, there are so many of his lines where you can tell that there's like that deadpan, like demeanor between just Mm -hmm. his delivery and I don't know. And we have to talk about the fact that he gets tied up by these girls, not not just once, but twice. (laughs) If that doesn't sell you to watch this movie, I mean. Yeah. If you want to see Henry Fonda get tied up by a gang of women, this is the movie for you. (laughs) Exactly. But I think that does speak, though, to the power balance between these two actors. Like, as you said, Barbara Stanwyck has such a huge personality, and she's very street smart in real life, of course, and that does come across in her characters, whereas Henry Fonda is, as you said, yeah, deadpan, a lot more sort of right demure it it works you need that balance because you can't really have, like, two huge personalities coming together. Right. I really don't think this would have worked if it was Stanwyck and any other quote-unquote bigger name actor at the time. Because I think Henry Fonda's almost boy-next-door quality is what makes it work. And you mentioned the Lady Eve. Obviously, I think that is probably the more well-known of the two. What were your first impressions of this film as a whole? And how do you think um, it stacks up to the Lady Eve? So I... Well, I love both, but the Lady Eve, I think, is a little sexier. Oh, yeah. The Lady Eve is definitely on the sexier end of Screwball. Yeah. Um, Very much boundary pushing for its time. And I think the Mad Miss Manton is, there's no quote unquote traditional way to make a Screwball, but it doesn't push as many of the boundaries, I feel like. I mean, 
There are certain little innuendos here and there. But when I first watched this movie, the whole concept of this girl gang trying to solve a murder is what drew me in. Mm -hmm. And it was so unique to me. I had never seen an old Hollywood film do that kind of thing before. Yeah. So that's what drew me in. And that's what kept me watching it. Mm Because I personally think it's a little hard to get into it first. But when you get through, I think, the first 10 minutes, then it's, it is very fast paced and it moves very quickly yeah. and it's hard to look away. It's my go-to example of Screwball's malleability and the fact that, you know, genre is so porous and it, I agree with you, it doesn't necessarily do anything particularly creative in terms of like aesthetics, like the director is Lee Jason. I mean, I don't think he's necessarily like an auteur, he's very much like a a journeyman in terms of a director. I think it borrows heavily from existing screwball films and other genres. Like I can see a lot of references to other screwball, other moments in other screwball films. But you, you talked about this a little bit before, but I was wondering if you could expand like how it plays with the parameters of genre. I mean, it is a murder mystery at its core. When I first watched it, I was kind of thinking of Double Indemnity as well, which came out long after. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of similarities, I think, in like the noir genre that add to the Mad Miss Mansions. You're right, though, because, I mean, for those of you listening, there's a really actually a wonderful book called uh, Screwball Comedy and Film Noir. I think the subtitle's like Unexpected Connections or something like that, but it's by Thomas Renzi. I'll put the full title in the description of this episode. But there are a lot of overlaps between screwball and film noir. Even though film noir came later, you do have the very confident heroine in both genres compared to the less strong-willed screwball anti-hero, if you will. So, and it's interesting that Barbara Stanwyck plays in both so well. Right. And then you look at like the general setting of the film too. I mean, there are like the dark lit streets and Mm -hmm. the dark houses and they're going to a party to try to catch a murderer. And there are all these kind of things that are more dark than comedy. Yeah. It still works in a comedy sense because they get into all kinds of hijinks along the way. You know, a body falls out of the freezer and they're, you know, held hostage in someone's office. And, you know, (laughs) it's just... It's almost Scooby-Doo-esque in a way, which, <laughs> you know, that's the only comparison I can make around, but like Sco- Scooby-Doo came much, much later, but that's what it makes me think of. Like these kids are just solving crimes and they get into all kinds of hijinks along the way. And it makes for a really yeah. compelling story. It is. It has that like absurd quality to it. To me, it's very much in the vein of, I guess, I don't know if they're trying to copy like the Thin Man um, and they even borrow, like in the first the first Thin Man movie, there's the finale, the dinner scene where all of the suspects are at the at the table. And I mean, this uh, film basically does that similar thing where cops yeah. are masquerading as waiters. So it's borrowing slash paying homage to what came before. But it's interesting, obviously, Melsa is unlike Nick Charles. She's not a professional detective, but she is still just as capable. She's very savvy. Yeah. yeah. And I think... It's interesting that this whole thing starts as a means for her to clear her name. Yeah. I think ultimately she becomes very attached to the idea of actually solving the crime. And instead of proving that there was actually a crime, she wants to get to the bottom of what exactly happened. So it's very much in that way. It is about carving out her identity and her perceptions of Mm -hmm. like who people think she is on both like the narrative level, but as, as the film as a whole, I think. 
Yeah, and then even the the way that the relationship develops between Melsa and Peter, like they start off as very antagonistic towards each other and then Mm -hmm. something clicks and he's like, oh, I'm actually like going to marry you. That's what I was going to ask. Melsa and Peter are very characteristic of like that combative screwball couple and they fit that antagonistic trope that you see very often in screwball. I think it's so funny to me, their first the first time they meet is when Melsa barges into Peter's office um, and she slaps his colleague and then he slaps her and he's like to complete the circle. So it starts off with such a bang. Yeah. Um, And literally, yeah, literally. And it develops from there. What do you think of Melsa and Peter's dynamic and how it evolves over the course of the film? Well, it it is very fast paced. Yeah. I think that's the only way it could work. I think ultimately, I think he's fascinated with her the first time that he meets her. Yeah. And he's like, oh, I like, yeah, I did write this about you, but yeah. what are you going to do about it? There's just this interest between the two of them. I think a very mutual interest. And I'm thinking of one scene in particular right now. So the scene where he's in her bedroom. Oh, and- yeah. yeah. She's lying on the bed and she's got like her face mask, like her eye mask on and whatever. And she's like, I need a cigarette. So he puts the cigarette in her mouth and then lights it. And I'm like, <laughs> I was thinking of that point too. Honestly, it's actually like pretty sexy though. Like yeah. she's framed in almost like a silhouette. She's lying in bed and she's like smoking. And it's like this almost like a turning point in their relationship where he's right I guess sees her more than just this dizzy debutante. He sees that she has like depth to right. her. And she obviously trusts him enough to be in her bedroom. Yeah. With no pretense of like anything happening. Yeah. And I think, I just think that's really interesting to see in a film from 1938, you know? Well, I think even, I don't know if it's Peter or Hilda, they mentioned like, well, where am I going to sleep? And she's like, well, whatever. And just, you know, stay on the couch or something. Like it's not a big deal. Yeah. It's such an important moment in the film. For me, another evocative scene comes at the end when Melsa's being held at gunpoint uh, by Eddie and she calls Peter to tell uh, him that she loves him. And Melsa is generally very flippant throughout the film. She's very playful yeah. and sort of like, you know, kind of carefree. Yeah. Exactly. But at that moment where she's on the phone and she actually thinks, oh God, like I could actually die. She's very soft and sentimental. And I think that's such a, testament to Barbara Stanwyck's performative range and that she's able to sort of bring all of that emotion together all in that you know one small moment there's just so much I love about just watching her facial expressions and Mm -hmm. just the way that she like changes the tone of her voice and I just I love her I just (laughs) I just love watching her in all these different roles and yeah, it's just like a it's a split second thing too, and it's it's so subtle, but she it's beautiful, and you see that again when I was again calling Peter Fonda, Henry Fonda, um, he's in the hospital bed and he's pretending that he's dying, and again she's very sincere in her emotion. Yeah, she's like, "You have to marry me. You promised in front of witnesses." Like- <laughs> Up until that point, I mean, I think. She hadn't really made like a pure comedy, right? Breakfast for, Breakfast for Two, which came in 1937, was really like her only straight comedy. But most of her roles were of the like the dramatic variety mm-hmm. with, with touches of comedy, of course. But this is the first sort of foray into screwball. And right. I would think how it would have been very interesting to 
for contemporaneous viewers to see her in this type of role because she was sort of playing against type. Right. And it's interesting. She did work with Lee Jason before this mm-hmm. movie. So in 1936, she filmed um, a movie called The Bride Walks Out. Mm. Uh, so that was a more romantic comedy type, not not really a screwball, but so she plays a woman who is a fashion model and her husband makes less money and doesn't, you know, think that she should continue doing that. So, you know, she wants to wants to go find a different job and she ends up falling in love with a millionaire. So it's another kind of, you know, romantic comedy type thing, but not not entirely the same thing that we're talking about. But I do think it's interesting that she worked with Lee Jason again, because I think that him directing her in The Mad Miss Manton was exactly what the film, like, needed. Yeah. That makes any sense. And I don't know if there are people out there who have seen The Bride Walks Out and can compare the two, but I think the second go-around, their work together really stands out but in terms of comedy I mean because it's it's true you do think of like Barbara Samuel and you immediately think double indemnity Stella Dallas all those more dramatic you know femme fatale or mm-hmm. complicated women type yeah. of role you know you don't think comedy even though she was very funny yeah did she like working in comedy or is it something for her that was just kind of get through it go back to what I really wanted to do what I have learned from reading about her and learning about her, it the script is what mattered to her. If mm-hmm. she liked the project, I think she was game for whatever. Yeah. And if you look at what she did down the road, like later in her life too, like Walk on the Wild Side or all the Westerns that she did and the yeah. Thorn Birds and the Big Valley, mm-hmm. those were all very different, unique projects so I think it was the script I can't speak to that you know fully but Mm. if I had to take a guess I would think the script and the project mattered more than the genre if that makes sense yeah she she seemed like she wanted a compelling character and someone who she could sort of make her own and I mean Barbara Stanwyck you hear stories about how she was always a consummate professional and she was you know, she knew her line, she knew everybody's line, she was always on time. And I, I suspect that she forged a, you know, even though Lee Jason wasn't necessarily, you know, a top Hollywood director, she forged a very good working relationship with him to be able to, you know, work with him both right. the, for both of these films. And to, they got it right here. <laughs> How would you compare her? I know she's not necessarily pigeonholed as a screwball comedian but obviously she made such iconic screwball comedies how would you compare her to some of her screwball peers I think I'm incredibly biased (laughs) so I don't know if I can actually give a good concise answer to that but I think had she been given the opportunity to do more comedy Mm -hmm. I think she would have been at the top of the game Mm -hmm. I mean, she's already lauded as one of the greatest of all times, like actresses in general, which is very fair. But if you look at other screwball type actresses like Carol, who she was very good friends with, mm-hmm. or like, you know, Kate Hepburn, all those other contemporaries, I think if she had done more comedy and been kind of given a chance to do more of those projects, I think we would know her much more now as a comedic 
actress, but the comedy that she did do, I think she's great. But again, I'm incredibly biased. No, I mean, (laughs) I mean, you're right though. So (laughs) yeah. And I would be very interested to hear what other people think about that also, because I feel like even in like the old Hollywood, like, you know, Twitter sphere and online communities, she's lauded as a much more dramatic actress. Yeah. I think that's an interesting point of discussion. Like, could she have been a greater comedic actress if given the opportunity? I think so. Definitely. I mean, I think what stands out compared to her peers is that, and I think it's just maybe her natural, her per personality, but she's so, I don't mean this in a negative way. I mean this positively. She's almost like so smart, like that she's almost like above the material. She's always like, you can see her characters are always thinking they're sexy, they're Mm -hmm. smart, they're sophisticated, but they're also like very, she can play lighthearted and sassy equally as well. So I think there's just such a dynamic element to her performances. And it's she's really quite different from, you know, a Carol Lombard or a Rosalind Russell. She's not that like physical comedian, but she doesn't, you wouldn't want that from her. I don't think. I don't think so. But it's, I like that you, you know, mentioned like, she was very smart, very well read. And that comes across in all of her characters because I, it, it seems obvious that she did her homework, you know, like she did the work yeah. and she was very eloquent and very, you know, even the way she speaks as the characters, I feel like if I sat down and had a conversation with her, like she would just still be that well-spoken and, and eloquent and intelligent, like just intelligence just radi- radiates off of her on the screen. Absolutely. And I think even with a character like going back to Mad Miss Manton, you see that even in a character like Melsa, who is, you know, she's this debutante, but as we talked about before, she is so smart. And the, um, mm-hmm. at the, the first scene where she's caught by the police and he's like, are you the same gal who stole a fire hydrant? Did you help, uh, hold a treasure hunt? And she's yeah. like, yep, yep, that's me. She's like right there with him, like snapping back just like catch up with me basically i'm yep. i'm already here when are you gonna get to where i am yep she's like yeah i did all this now what about this murder yeah like, what are you gonna do about the murder yeah and that's something i think that only you could really get from a barbara stanwick i don't know if it that savviness it's like street smart street smart yeah that's a good way of putting it her characters are street smart and that's why i think melsa is a different kind of heiress she is very aware of the world Mm -hmm. Um, in a way that you can't say that about like an Irene Bullock. I was just going to say, yeah, her and Irene Bullock would be in the same circle, but not in the same circle. Exactly. I love Irene Bullock. I love my man Godfrey, but she would not be in Melissa's girl gang. She's smart in terms of knowing how to like manipulate people, Mm -hmm. but she's not street smart. Yeah. Melissa. Since you are a Stanwyck super fan, big question. If you could cast her in any screwball comedy alongside an actor of your choice that you hadn't worked with in a screwball comedy, who would it be and why? I don't know about a specific screwball comedy because I feel like you can't touch the ones that have already been made, you know? Yeah. I would love to see her. I would have loved to see her in something comparable to his girl Friday mm. you know I feel like she could really suit that you know wisecracking like oh, fast yeah. 
don't know. What do we think about Stanwick with Robert Mitchum? That would have been, honestly, Robert Mitchum in a screwball comedy. I would have killed right? that. Yes. Like, how do we feel about that? I, I've never thought about it before, but honestly, that would have been think, so interesting. I think he they're could both off, very strong personalities. I think he could pull off a screwball comedy. I really do. But something, you know, fast cracking, like wise cracking and like fast moving, fast paced, like His Girl Friday, not necessarily His Girl Friday, but something similar to that, I think would be yeah. really fun and interesting for both of them to kind of sink their teeth into. That's, oh man, that would have been a cool dynamic, actually. Yeah. Yeah. My other gonna... option was Jimmy Stewart, but, <laughs> you know, Jimmy I can't Stewart go with the obvious answer. <laughs> he could have played Peter, though. Oh, God, don't do that to me. <laughs> fan casting no so I could not handle seeing Jimmy light that cigarette though I would not have been able to handle I would have had to turn the movie off like girl I'm going home (laughs) too much yeah like okay anybody if this still makes it into the cut like Jimmy Stewart is like my number one for anybody who is listening so if you ever find me on social media like I'm the Barbara and Jimmy (laughs) If you see a tweet about either of them, it is from Kate. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, goodness. I I think I would have maybe liked to see her work with Melvin Douglas. Oh, that would be fun. Because I feel like he has that very light air about him that I think she can do very well, or she could do very well. Right. It would have been interesting to see how they would have worked in the genre. Right. I feel like they could balance each other really well, too. Yeah. There's so many what ifs. Is that a time machine? I know. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Kate. I really enjoyed talking to you um, about the Mad Miss Manton. Oh, I always have such a good time, and I can't wait for more screwball story. Thank you. And where can people find you? I know so social I, media is always evolving, but. <laughs> yeah. So I am on Twitter um, and you can leave my at in the description if you'd like. And I'm also on blue sky. So you can leave that in the description of the episode. Um, But if you're on either of those platforms, I would love to interact and get to know anybody who's listening and talk about, you know, screwball old Hollywood in general. Um, Yeah. I'm always down to chit chat. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. That'll do it for this week's episode of The Screwball Story. If you'd like to stay up to date with news, please follow me on Instagram or Twitter at The Screwball Story. Until next time, bye-bye. Bye-bye.